Um, but this week we come to the gospel in the letters of the New Testament. Um, and I wonder if you were picking somewhere in the letters, Paul's letters, John's, Peter's, James, um, if you were picking somewhere to find uh, a nice little summary of the gospel, I wonder where your mind would go. Um, there's probably a few very famous passages you, you might be likely to go to. You might go to Romans 3 uh, and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God but are justified freely by his grace. That would be a good place to go. Um, or you might, your mind might go to Ephesians 2 uh, and it's by grace you've been saved through faith, not by works, so no one can boast. Um, and that would be a great choice as well. Um, we're going to go this morning to a slightly less famous passage, um, but I think for me, uh, one of the most beautiful summaries of the gospel to be found in the New Testament. And uh, it's in the little book of Titus, uh, which if you're following in your own Bible, um, I don't know if you know, this is, this is one of those things that was a game changer when somebody told me, uh, and I think I was a fair age before anybody told me, that Paul's letters in the New Testament are arranged from biggest to smallest. Uh, I don't think anybody told me that for a long time, so they start with Romans and end with Philemon, which is tiny, and Titus is just before that. So if you're trying to find Titus, uh, it's the second shortest of Paul's letters. Um, we're going to read uh, from Titus chapter 3, and reading from verse 3. Um, so you can follow on the screen or in your own, your own Bible. Paul writes, At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. That's our reading for this morning. Um, we're going we're gonna to start by thinking about um, Paul's diagnosis of our human problem. We, we'll get to the good news in a moment. But Paul begins with quite stark words about our, our human predicament, our human problem. Uh, and actually, he piles up four very strong words, one on top of the other. Uh, he says, we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved. And maybe immediately we wonder, well, who, who was Paul talking about there? Uh, and maybe just a little bit of context about the book of Titus. Uh, Paul was writing to Titus, who was one of his younger co-workers, like Timothy, who he sent out to look after churches uh, in different parts of the empire. Um, Titus was given the job of looking after the churches on the island of Crete, which is not a bad gig if you can get it, uh, in the Mediterranean. Um, but the young, the young church, the young Christians in Crete, 
were from a, a Gentile background, so they were from a pagan background, which meant they would have, in their past, worshipped many gods and worshipped idols in the, the pagan temples. Um, and I think it's, it's pretty uncontroversial to say also that the Greek world of that time, the pagan Greek world, um, the culture had a reputation for um, things like drunkenness and gluttony and sexual permissiveness. It was a pretty anything-goes kind of culture. And that was the background of these new Christians on the island of Crete. And actually, Titus's own background was in that kind of pagan background as well, right? So maybe I want to suggest, if Paul had said, you were foolish and disobedient and deceived and enslaved, we might not be surprised because he's talking to people from a slightly wild background or a slightly a, a background of obvious bad behavior. And so if he said that to them, we wouldn't be surprised. But the surprise is this, that Paul says, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved. And if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you probably know Paul did not come from that kind of background. Paul had been... Um, an extremely religious, respectable, upstanding person. Paul had been a Pharisee of the Pharisees who knew his Bible really well and prayed every day and went to the temple and went to the synagogue and kept the religious rules. And you'd have looked at him and thought he had it all together, right? And yet, Paul puts himself in the same boat as these Cretans from this pagan background. And he says, we all together were these things. And so there's kind of no getting away from the starkness of this. This is Paul's diagnosis of our shared human condition. Paul is saying we, we are all in this mess together, left to ourselves. Um, and I don't know whether your background, your story is more like the Cretans or more like Paul, um, but whichever it is, we're all in this together. Paul says, we all were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved. I wonder immediately, what, what do you think of that? What do you think of that diagnosis as Paul makes it? Um, sometimes our, our view of sin, because uh, although Paul doesn't use the word sin here, that's, uh, I guess, what he's talking about. Um, sometimes our view of sin can be a little bit one-dimensional. Um, so sometimes we focus on sin, on just that word there, um, on sin as disobedience. And so sometimes when we're talking to kids, we, we tell children sin is doing and saying bad things. Or we tell each other as adults, sin is disobeying God's commands. And that is one really important dimension of sin. There is an aspect of sin that is a kind of deliberate, willful rebellion against God. Um, any of you who have kids or uh, have brought up young kids in your home, um, will probably recognize a scenario where you tell a child not to do something or not to touch something, and they literally are looking at you and going and moving closer and closer to it. And there's, there's, there's that kind of deliberate, here is the line, and I'm going to deliberately step over it. And there is something in our human nature that, that sometimes does that. God has drawn a line and we deliberately step over it. It's willful rebellion. But I find Paul's picture, this diagnosis of our problem, um, is much more nuanced, and there's more to it 
than just that. Paul says we're not only disobedient, we're also foolish and deceived and enslaved. And I think those other words are also really important. They give a textured view of our problem. Because if we're foolish and deceived, that means we don't always see clearly where the line is. We don't always have a clear view of right and wrong and good and evil. We get those things mixed up. And that means we'll sometimes set out with good intentions, wanting to do good and wanting to be a good person and wanting to be a good husband and a good father and a good neighbor and a good colleague and thinking that we are being wise and enlightened. So we're not setting out to be willful and rebellious. And yet sometimes our best efforts will sometimes lead to more mess because we're not only disobedient, we're also foolish and deceived. Something has gone wrong in our minds and our hearts. That means we don't see clearly, we don't see rightly. I wonder, do you see that in our world? People setting out with good intentions to try to make the world better and sometimes ending up in more mess. I, I feel like I see that around in our world a lot at the moment. I wonder, do you see that in your own life where you head off on Monday morning determined to make the world better and make and do better this week? And then somehow our good intentions go astray because we're not just disobedient, we're also foolish and deceived. And if we're also enslaved, which is a very powerful word, by our passions and desires, that means sometimes we're going to be aiming for what is good and really determined to go after it. But we'll find that we swerve off course, like that wonky shopping trolley we've talked about before. And we'll find ourselves unable to live up to our own best ideals. And we'll find ourselves compulsively doing things that we don't want to do. Things that actually harm us and make us sad, but we're unable to stop doing them. There's an addictive, compulsive aspect to our behavior. Because we're enslaved by our desires, which are distorted. And again, I wonder, do you see that in our world? And I wonder, do you recognize that in yourself? Uh, that sometimes it's not just that we always deliberately step over the line, but we something steers us off course, sometimes even when we're aiming for the best. Um, Paul, Paul's picture of our human problem touches on every aspect of our human nature. Uh, maybe one way we could sum it all up is by saying, if we're foolish, that means our minds are darkened, as Paul says in another place. If we're disobedient, that means our will, that place from which we make choices, is rebellious. If we're deceived, then that means that our vision, as we look at the world, is blurred. We don't see clearly. And if we're enslaved, then that means that our desires have been distorted so that they lead us astray. And by the way, just as a little side note, uh, it's really important to say passions and desires are not bad things in themselves. God wants us to be people with a lot of passion and a lot of desire, but our, our passions and desires have been distorted so that we love the wrong things in the wrong way at the wrong time. And what we need is for somehow our desires to be recalibrated by someone. That's getting ahead of ourselves. Um, so that, that's Paul's diagnosis of our human problem. And he goes a little bit further and talks about how those deep problems in our hearts, in our nature, then come out into the open in our relationships, 
and he uses these three other very strong words. He talks about malice and envy and hatred. So that's where the things that have gone wrong in our minds and hearts bubble up into the open and are shown in our relationships. And again, you don't have to look very far in our world uh, or in our, our own lives to see those things causing harm, malice and envy and hatred. But often people are trying really hard to solve those problems but often our best efforts don't seem to make much progress. And according to Paul's diagnosis, that's maybe no wonder because we're trying to deal with the symptoms rather than the root cause. We're trying to heal the malice and envy and hatred without looking deeper to see what's going on inside. So that's a pretty grim place to start, right? You're, you're dying for me to get to some good news. This is a series about gospel uh, about good news. Where do we look for hope and help and healing uh, whenever we're in this condition? Um, I love the way um, you've probably noticed often in the Bible when we get a picture that is really dark, we then get a turning point where you get the word but. That's kind of the hinge on which everything turns. Uh, Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, called this a, a you catastrophe. It's the opposite of a catastrophe. When good things break in, almost when you least expect them. Um, and this is one of my favorites in the New Testament. Paul says, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, that's one of my favorite phrases in the Bible. When the kindness and love of God our, our Savior appeared. It's not an extraordinary sentence to come after what we've just been reading. So God looks at humanity in all of our self-inflicted mess and all of our foolishness and all of our malice and envy and hatred. And he doesn't turn his back and walk away. And he doesn't destroy us and start again. But instead, he pours out kindness. I think every time I read this passage, that's the word that catches my breath. Um, maybe I want to pause there and just ask, I wonder, do you know this morning in your heart of hearts, that God is kind. I wonder, do you know that? Maybe if I asked you to give me words that describe God, there might be all kinds of other words that come to mind, and many of them would be true. But I wonder, do you know that our God's heart, that our God's character is deeply, deeply kind? What does Paul mean uh, whenever he says, God's kindness and love appeared. That's also quite a, a striking phrase. Um, I think when Paul says that, he's talking about Jesus. It's kind of a poetic way of speaking of the coming of Jesus. Um, of course, God has shown his kindness and love in many other ways. But when Jesus appeared and walked the earth, God's love and kindness became wonderfully, uh, beautifully clear and visible as never before. The kindness of God appeared uh, in the, 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 the hill country of Galilee and walked around and lived his life. And you see the kindness of God in the life of Jesus. Just look at how he loved people. And you see God's kindness made abundantly evident. And we see the kindness of God in the death of Jesus as he took on himself all of our sinful mess and all of our foolishness and all of our rebelliousness 
and all that we've been talking about so that we could experience grace. We see the kindness of God when we look at Jesus. I find myself thinking of um, a song by the, the late great Rich Mullins who sang, we didn't know what love was till he came and he gave love a face and he gave love a name and he gave love away like the sky gives rain and sun. We were looking for heroes. He came looking for the lost. We were searching for glory and he showed us a cross. Now we know what love is because he loves us all the way to kingdom come. The kindness of God appeared because Jesus appeared. That's where we see the love and kindness of God as never before. If you're not sure this morning that God is kind, turn your eyes and look at Jesus. Pay attention to Jesus. Um, And everything else in this passage flows from here. Because Jesus has appeared, because Jesus has entered the story, because the kindness of God has invaded, now all kinds of things become possible. And so Paul says in three very simple words, he saved us. That's what flows out from the appearing of Jesus and the kindness of God. Um, Paul says it twice in verse 5 to make sure we we hear it. He also repeats the word saviour twice in verse 5 and verse 6. This is the big theme in this passage. I wonder how you feel about the word saved. It can sometimes be like a piece of our religious jargon in Northern Ireland. Um, We need to hear it, I think, in the context of the story that Paul is telling, um, that we were in this tangled, hopeless mess that we talked about at the beginning. We were kind of sinking in that marshy, swampy ground, and we couldn't get ourselves free. And then God's kindness appeared in Jesus, and he saved us, he rescued us, he lifted us out of that swampy ground and put our feet on solid rock. Um, he, He brought us out of captivity and into freedom. We need to have that story in mind when we hear the word saved. It's not just a piece of jargon. It tells a story of liberation in our lives. Um, And Paul goes on to use lots of other powerful words. He kind of piles, uh, just like he piled all those difficult, ugly words at the beginning to describe our predicament, he piles up all these beautiful words to describe what the kindness of God does in our lives. Um, And I want to focus on just two this morning. Um, He says he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal. Um, I wonder what those two words communicate to you this morning. What kind of sense comes to mind as you think about those? Rebirth and renewal. This is what God does in our lives when his kindness invades our lives. Um, To me, those two words speak of Uh, A new beginning, that's a a lot of what's expressed there, a a radical new beginning, a new start. And they also speak of a deep and radical transformation, a really deep change of our hearts and our nature and our our lives. Um, I don't know if you like those TV shows where houses get renovated. I don't really like them, Um, but you may. They they seem to be on TV all the time. Um, But... Maybe sometimes the changes to a house when it gets renovated like that um, can be relatively minor. You kinda, there's a few little tweaks and changes here and there. It probably wouldn't make great TV if it was just a little lick of paint 
here and there. So usually in those shows, when they, people go in for the after kind of moment to see what has happened, the change is so radical and so drastic that you almost wouldn't know it was the same house, right? You kind of go in and go, this is, everything has changed. And I think that's the kind of thing that's being expressed in these words that Paul uses. Salvation is not about a splash of paint and a few small repairs uh, here and there. It's about a radical renewal of your entire nature. It's about a renovation of the heart. It's about a new birth and a new creation. That's a pretty powerful thing uh, to think about. Um, you could think about those four dimensions of our humanity that we talked about earlier, that our, our minds were darkened and foolish, but now our minds get renewed and filled with God's wisdom. We, we talked about how our will was rebellious and disobedient, but now our will gets renewed so that we're able to choose joyful obedience. We talked about how our vision was blurred and deceived, but now our vision gets renewed so that we can see clearly what is real and true. And we talked about how our desires were distorted and kept us enslaved, but now our desires get reborn, our desires get renewed, so that we're able to love what is good and beautiful. So just as sin touched on every part of our nature, so this rebirth and renewal touches on every single part of our human nature. I wonder, is that something you've experienced in your life? Um, it's available this morning to anyone who comes to Jesus in faith, that rebirth, that renewal by the Holy Spirit. I wonder, are you aware this morning that that's something you really need? That you've tried to sort out the mess by yourself, but you keep getting more tangled and you need the kindness of God to come and invade your life and make things new. I want to encourage you this morning. That's available to you this morning. And when we pause in a moment and pray, I want to encourage you that, that that's a step you can take this morning. But before I finish, um, is that the end of the story of, what, of Paul's uh, beautiful summary of the gospel here? Paul has a little bit more to say. Um, I wonder, did you notice as we read, twice Paul says, so that. That's a, a lovely little phrase, so that. It's pointing us to the goal. Where, where is all this going? Where is all this heading? God does all this work in our lives of uh, washing us and making us new and reborn. So what? Where, where does that go? What does that lead to in our lives? Um, and I think Paul points us to two consequences of the gospel working in our lives. One is that we become people of hope. Paul says in verse 7, uh, that we are heirs with the hope of eternal life. When, we ex when we've experienced the kindness and love of God, when we've been reborn and renewed by the Holy Spirit, we become people who carry a powerful living hope. We become heirs having the hope of eternal life. So we, we, part of what that means, I think, is we don't need to fear anything. Because nothing can separate us from God's love, not even death itself. We have that hope as something unshakable. Um, Peter says something really similar in 1 Peter 1, where he's, he talks about how God in his mercy has given us new birth. So there's that being reborn again. He's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus and into an inheritance 
that can never perish or spoil or fade, which is kept in heaven for you. That's a pretty powerful hope to have before you. So we become people of this unshakable hope. Maybe sometimes in our telling of the gospel, that's where we stop. Uh, You get saved, you get born again. Now you have the hope of heaven. But Paul still has one more thing to say. I wonder, did you notice how this passage ended? We also become people who are energetic in doing good. That's actually where this passage finishes. Um, Actually, this whole section that we read is sandwiched by that phrase. So in verse 1, which we didn't read, Paul says, be ready to do whatever is good. You kind of get this picture of someone who's kind of balanced and ready, ready to jump into action. Be ready to do whatever is good. And then Paul reminds us of the gospel. And then he returns to this theme and says, be careful to devote yourselves to doing what is good. Or as one translation says, to be energetic in doing good. If we're gospel people, if we're saved people and born again people, the outcome of this in our lives will be that we are devoted and passionate and energetic in doing good. It's a a really dangerous mistake to think that doing good is not part of the Christian message. It's just that we need to get it in the right place. We don't do good in order to earn God's acceptance. We're, or as, as Paul said in the passage we read, we're not saved because of righteous things we have done. We don't do it to earn welcome and approval and acceptance by God. We're saved by his mercy, by his grace, by his kindness, by his love, breaking into our lives unexpected and undeserved. But when the kindness and mercy of God gets hold of your life, when the kindness and mercy of God has invaded your life, and you've been washed and reborn and renewed and justified, there's only one possible outcome, which is that our lives will become increasingly filled with the characteristics of God, including his kindness, including his generosity, including his mercy, including his grace, and all the rest. Um, There's a world of difference between trying really hard to be good because you're trying to impress God or other people, trying to prove that you're worthy and deserving, and having a heart that has been overwhelmed by the kindness of God, and which then overflows into your actions. Um, Andrew Peterson sings, I've been seized by the power of a great affection, and now this is the theme of my song, and now I must forgive as I'm forgiven. We receive God's forgiveness and then we pass it on, the overflow. We receive God's kindness and then we pass it on. We receive God's mercy and pass it on because we've been seized by the power of a great affection. The kindness of God has invaded our life and now we go to show that kindness to others. Um, In your home, uh, in your neighborhood, in your workplace this week, There are going to be people who are stuck and who are entangled and who are struggling with all the things we talked about at the start. Sometimes it'll be obvious. Sometimes it'll be well hidden. Sometimes they'll be like the Cretans, living wildly. Sometimes they'll be like Paul, very respectable. But still they'll be stuck and entangled and struggling. 
And what is it that they need? They need the kindness of God to appear in their life. And I think this is a really exciting place to finish. How will that happen? The kindness of God appearing in their life. Well, one part of the answer is that you can show up as a carrier of that kindness and you can live the gospel in your everyday actions. And then when the opportunity arises, you can tell them in words about the kindness of God that has appeared in Jesus. It's not a powerful thing that this week the kindness of God could appear in someone's life because you walk up to them ready to pass on what you've been given. Let's pray as we we finish and then we're going to sing a song of response. Father, I want to pray that every single one of us here this morning in the Sandal Centre, every single one of us tuning in in our own homes, I want to pray that we would know in the depth of our being, in the quiet place at the centre of our lives, that we would know that you are a God who is kind and who has shown that kindness in an unmistakable way in the life and death of the Lord Jesus. Father, for those who really need it this morning, I want to pray for an overwhelming sense this morning of your kindness for us. Father, I want to pray that every single one of us would know that we don't need to remain stuck and entangled by all the things that we talked about at the beginning. Father, I want to pray if there's anyone this morning who needs to take that simple step of simply saying to you, Lord, I can't get myself free. I can't get myself untangled. I can't heal my own heart. Would you come in your kindness and your love and make me new? Father, I want to pray you'd give us the courage if we need to do that this morning to take that simple step. And Father, I want to pray for all of us that this kindness that has invaded our lives through Jesus, I want to pray that more and more, day by day, it would overflow in our lives to those around us. Father, I want to pray that this week you would give us opportunity to show your kindness and your grace and your mercy to people we meet in our ordinary days. Um, Father, we pray that the beauty of Jesus would be seen in our lives this week. And we pray in his name. Amen.